This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Good evening. My name is Harry Helling. I'd like to welcome everybody. I'm the Executive Director at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, University of California, San Diego. I'd like to welcome you all to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Speaker Series. This evening, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Sarah Allard, who will be presenting her work in the very interesting and fast-growing field of microbial ecology. Sarah is an associate project scientist at the University of California, San Diego, where she works with, in Dr. Jack Gilbert's lab, housed between Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the Department of Pediatrics at UC San Diego. Sarah began her research career as an undergraduate studying bees and pollination, and then moved on to an Oak Ridge Institute of Science and Education Fellowship at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. There, her research focused on on on-farm food safety and biological control of foodborne pathogens. Sarah received her PhD in plant sciences from the University of Maryland and remained at UMD for a postdoctoral fellowship in Um, in the Maryland Institute of Applied Environmental Health. There, she studied crops, soil, and water microbiomes in the context of food safety and environmental change. In her current role at UCSD, Sarah is exploring how microbiome research can be harnessed to support environmental restoration, safe and productive food systems, and the betterment of human health. Sarah also coordinates an interdisciplinary research experience and mentoring program designed to build a robust mentoring environment and facilitate hands-on training for local undergraduate students interested in pursuing STEM careers. Please, please join me in welcoming Sarah for her talk entitled Waterborne Pathogens, Pollution, and Microbiomes. Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I love coming to the Birch Aquarium with my family, and um, I'm so excited to be here uh, to share a little bit about my research with all of you. And uh, this photo is not a live stream um, out the window, but actually is one that I took (laughs) a couple of years ago. So from a young age, I was fascinated with the environment surrounding us. Um, I grew up in rural Vermont, actually, Um, and spent a lot of time outside as a kid. And some of my favorite memories from growing up were my family vacations to coastal Maine, where my siblings and I spent a lot of time uh, staring at tide pools and learning about the creatures within. Um, Some things change and some things don't. So uh, I'm on a different coast now. (laughs) But this is a picture of me and my dad um, earlier this year, um, just down there um, by the tide pools down by SIO, uh, both displaying what my husband calls tide pool face. Uh, just kind of staring in and um, being very excited to see all those creatures. Uh, Professionally, I have made my career about looking at the things that we can't see with our naked eye, but that are no less important and interesting. And that's what we're going to talk about today, uh, microorganisms. You are surrounded by microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, viruses, uh, both inside and on your bodies, uh, in the environments surrounding you. With my research, I study these microorganisms and how they may influence food safety and security, uh, the built environments that we inhabit, and our health. Uh, Today, we're going to be focused mostly on seafood. Here at UC San Diego, I am an associate project scientist in Jack Gilbert's lab, who's sitting right here with some of our other lab members. 
Um, it's a really unique position that I enjoy a lot where I am part of the management team of the lab, so I'm involved in mentoring the students and postdocs, um, as well as writing grants, running research programs, analyzing data, um, working with our data management systems. And our lab primarily does microbiome research, so studying uh, microorganisms in many, many different uh, environments. Uh, we have a wide range of research areas, uh, primarily those connected to environmental and human health. So you're surrounded by microorganisms, but how important are they and how do we study them? Um, over the past decades of microbiology, we've discovered that they're incredibly important for everything from nutrient cycling to supporting human health, um, and sometimes there might be pathogens that don't support our human health. Um, but one of the really exciting things about microbiome research is that you can apply the same techniques to study microorganisms in many different environments, and that's what, part of what allows our lab to have such a diverse research portfolio in all these different environments. And microbiology has a really rich history with many, many different techniques that have allowed us to study these organisms. Um, we first were able to start deeply studying these organisms with the invention of the microscope, which is really, really cool, but is a bit limited um, in what we can do. For example, here are two bacteria that look similar when you look at them under the microscope, but they're actually very different in terms of how they impact us as humans. On the left, we have Salmonella enterica, which is a common cause of food poisoning and an organism that I studied a whole lot during my time at the FDA. Um, and on the right side is Lactobacillus acidophilus, which you eat a lot in your morning yogurt and doesn't cause any problems at all. Um, so you can lose some information when you're just zooming in with a microscope or even looking at cultures on plates. So this is an example of an image of Salmonella enterica growing on what we call uh, specific media. Um, so we can use these types of, of media or nutrient broths or nutrient plates that allow us to um, only grow certain bacteria that we're interested in detecting. Um, and you may get some clues as well with the, the shapes and colors of those organisms. So this is another great tool we have um, with some limits. So it's increasingly common now to use uh, DNA and RNA genetic codes to gain more information about bacteria and other microorganisms. Um, I was first exposed to this technology when I worked at the Food and Drug Administration um, after completing my undergraduate degree. I started there right around the time that this first started being used in outbreak investigations of uh, foodborne disease. So uh, basically you would take that culture plate that I showed in the last slide um, extract the DNA, the genetic code, from um, that bacteria, and then sequence it. See what the genetic code of that organism is, compare it to reference databases that we have, and then you can identify not just the species of bacteria, but even get down to more specific strains. And this is now used in these outbreak investigations when people are getting sick from a particular food vehicle, so that you can say, okay, this strain that's in you know, people's poop that we're getting sick has also been found in a facility that's producing a certain type of food, and that can kind of speed up the outbreak traceback. So this genomics really allows for the contextualization of microbes in the tree of life. And this is a, a recent view of the tree of life um, that includes a lot more information than we used to have. And every time we continue sequencing and adding more information, we gain more and more resolution about how different microorganisms are related. Um, and we can sort of place the organisms that we're interested in in context using that genetic code. And genomics can also um, be helpful when we're tracking the evolution of specific pathogens. For example, you may be familiar with um, a certain virus that we've all uh, been exposed to over the past few years called SARS-CoV-2. Um, and here you can see how some of the strains have, uh, have evolved over the past few years, how they're related. And then using these uh, techniques, you can track which proportions might be more um, numerous in certain locations over time. 
But beyond looking at specific organisms of interest, we can also identify whole microbial communities. So um, we now have the tools that allow us to study the entire microbiome, the collection of microbes in a given environment, by studying the total community genetic material in any given environment. Um, and again, this allows us to study so many different things and their microbes. So for example, this is from the very first microbiome study that I worked on, where we looked at the differences in the tomato microbiome in different parts of a plant, finding that much like in the human body, the tomato anatomy results in differences in the microbiome in different parts of the plant. We can also look at associations with pathogens or disease states or environmental conditions to take it a step further. Uh, for example, this is from a study um, that I worked on over the past couple years where we profiled all of the bacteria present in hospital rooms and patients with SARS-CoV-2 throughout their hospital stays in the ICU, and we were able to identify bacteria that correlated with SARS-CoV-2 both in patients and in the surrounding room. Uh, and we currently have some follow-up studies ongoing to further examine this relationship and what it means. Okay, I did tell you I was going to talk about water, so we'll get a little bit into to water now. So increasingly, we're designing our studies to use these tools to describe microbial communities over time. Um, this is a plot that was created by one of our graduate students, Sho Kodera, and it shows how much freshwater microbiomes can vary over the course of a year. Uh, this was a study from uh, profiling the Chicago area waterways over the course of seven years, and we saw this consistent pattern um, of seasonal change in the microbiome over time. Um, and the, one of the goals of this study was to evaluate the impacts of uh, wastewater treatment upgrades for two wastewater treatment plants that were releasing their treated effluent into the waterways. And we did find that there were specific changes in fecal-associated bacteria right next to the outfall, uh, but not necessarily further downstream because there's just so many other uh, inputs. And we saw these seasonal patterns continuing throughout the system. So a little closer to home, we're also investigating what's going on in the water uh, in our oceans. This is a picture of me and my boss, Jack Gilbert, um, <laughs> a few weeks after I started working at SIO uh, when we took part in the annual swim, uh, pier swim, which we love to do every year. Um, we go out with a bunch of other scientists from SIO, swim around the pier, have a barbecue, have a great time. But we know that our oceans, beyond being fun to swim in and explore, are also incredibly important for so many aspects of planetary health. Uh, but the one that I'm most, most passionate about studying is related to food. Um, I found my passion for science and studying food microbiology on farms, and so I'm super su excited here at SIO to be able to study organisms that are important in aquaculture. And obviously there's a lot that has to happen in order for that food to be produced um, and harvested and before it can end up on our plates, um, just like in agriculture. So, and we know that just like everything else in our world, our oceans and our seafood are influenced by microorganisms in both helpful and harmful ways. It's also important to acknowledge that the interactions between a host and a pathogen or a beneficial organism um, do not happen in a vacuum. Their interactions are also influenced by the environmental conditions surrounding them. So I like this, um, this kind of idea that's been been shown in many different ways as kind of the disease triangle of in order to identify how, um, how influential a disease is going to be on a host, there are three different factors to take into account. The pathogen itself, the host, and the environment surrounding it. Um, and we know that the environment is changing in many ways, in ways that can influence the pathogen, can influence the host, and the way that they interact. So it leaves, it opens the door for a lot of research questions. So in the Gilbert Lab, we have a growing oyster research program, including projects that touch on all of these interest areas shown here. 
human pathogens, pathogens of marine organisms, and anthropogenic pollution are kind of the main areas. Um, and our research brings in that important context of the microbiome and the climate as well. So why have we chosen to study oysters? Well, when we first started the lab here at SIO, some of our lab members were really passionate about the importance of studying oysters. And I was excited to make the switch from studying agricultural crops to studying aquaculture organisms. And oysters are one of the most important organisms for aquaculture. They're a relatively low input and healthy form of uh, protein and sustenance. They support our coastal economies. Um, and native oysters, actually, which are pretty abundant around our coasts, can filter and clean our water up to 50 gallons a day of both chemical and microbial contaminants. But this filtering is another thing that makes them really interesting to study if we're considering them as a source of food. Um, sure, it's great that they're cleaning all the water by filtering chemical and microbial contaminants, but how might that affect our exposure risk if we eat those oysters? So one thing that I find really exciting about oysters is they relate to so many sustainable development goals. Uh, by being a less resource-intensive food that doesn't require any added feed beyond what's already in the ocean, um, and actually cleaning the water more than polluting it is contributing to multiple of these goals, supporting the economy, um, and also being a healthy, low-fat source of protein, omega-3s, iron, zinc, and vitamin B12. Um, they can contribute to good health and well-being. So oysters, fantastic uh, future direction. <laughs> So in our lab, we use a variety of techniques to study oysters, um, a mix of field studies and lab-based studies. Um, so it's really important to study what's going on uh, in the environment in terms of our, our local conditions and our local oysters. But in the lab, you have a lot more control over the different factors and how they're all interrelated because they really are all interrelated. So I'm going to start by discussing um, some of our field research that was led by uh, Dr. Rachel Diner, who is a postdoc in our lab um, and has now just started her own lab at the University of Memphis. Um, here she is out collecting samples with some of our graduate and undergraduate students, Zach, Emily, and Yash. And um, in conjunction with a local organization, Squirp, uh, Rachel collected samples from Newport Bay from several different locations and looked at both oyster and water microbiomes over the course of a few time points. And um, despite the fact that the water microbiomes were pretty different, um, so if you look at this graph, the thing to pay attention to is the different points and how close they are to each other or how far apart. So each dot represents a sample. And if those dots are closer together, that means they share more similar microbial communities. And if they're farther apart, that means that their microbial communities are a little bit different. And you can tell which samples are which by the, the color codes we have here. So you, if you just look at the orange dots, you can see that there's kind of two clusters of water samples. There's, um, and the ones on the bottom are clustering separately. And those turned out to be higher salinity water. So we're seeing there that the higher salinity water has a little bit of a different microbiome compared to the lower salinity waters. But when we look at the oysters, they're all pretty similar to each other regardless of where they came from. So this is a pretty interesting finding suggesting that the water is uh, more changeable in response to those environmental conditions than the oysters. But we have an ongoing study expanding the geography of this a little bit and the time of this a little bit um, to look between Newport Bay and San Diego Bay and over a longer time period to further tease apart these dynamics. Further results from this study showed that it's not that the oyster microbiome is completely independent from the water. Um, we actually did see that specific bacteria were correlated between the water and the oysters. Uh, in particular, when we saw high levels of potentially pathogenic Vibrio bacteria in the water, we also saw high levels in the oysters. 
Um, and we also found that these higher levels of potential pathogens were correlated with higher temperature, higher salinity, and higher overall microbial diversity. Um, but why do we care about this bacteria Vibrio parahemolyticus that I have selected in this box? So Vibrio parahemolyticus is uh, the most common cause of seafood-borne illness in the U.S. It's most often associated with the consumption of raw and undercooked shellfish and usually oysters. So this is another reason why in our lab we're really interested in studying oysters, um, not just for their incredible potential as a sustainable food source, but also because um, you know, there is some risk associated with eating them, and they are tied to foodborne disease um, over and over. And that's because they're often eaten raw, which means they're not subject to a kill step like a lot of other foods. For example, if you had um, you know, bought some chicken at the supermarket that had salmonella on it, as long as you cook it to the required temperature, you're not going to get sick. But with oysters, uh, many, many times, very often, um, they're delicious when they're not cooked. So um, they're not going to be subject to that kill step. So in food safety research, there's a lot of emphasis on identifying conditions when foodborne pathogens are likely to come into contact with high-risk foods like this, um, and how to prevent that from occurring, and how to treat and remove pathogens if they end up there. So the symptoms of Vibrio parahemolyticus infection are just like that of, uh, of most foodborne pathogen infections, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting. Um, but in some cases, it can be very serious and lead to septicemia and death. So again, um, it's an important area of research to focus on uh, prevention and treatment of these infections. We also know that pathogenic Vibrio have moved around the world in multiple waves. Um, but particularly since 1998, we've seen more virulent strains moving quickly around the world and causing infections. Um, and of the major foodborne pathogens, Vibrio is the only group that is clearly increasing in incidence, uh, possibly because of these new and more virulent strains, and also because of our warming waters that are expanding uh, both the uh, geographic and the temporal range of where these Vibrio can survive and thrive. So we already know that rising sea temperatures are influencing Vibrio spread and illness, um, and we wonder if other aspects of our changing planet could be influencing it as well. So at the same time that we're seeing rising temperatures, we're also seeing rising pollution of microplastics. Uh, microplastics are ubiquitous in marine environments, particularly in coastal areas, and plastic pollution can harbor a rich microbial community on their surface that may include Vibrio species at higher concentrations than in water. So our graduate student, Kara Wiggin, is leading a project to examine whether microplastics can act as a significant vector of Vibrio parahemolyticus to oysters. And this work is supported by uh, seed funding that I was awarded from SAO to kick this research off and gain preliminary data um, that we can leverage for grant applications. And we're super thankful for that funding and excited um, for all the things that it's enabled us to do to get this research off the ground. So we already know that raw oysters are vehicles of Vibrio parahemolyticus to humans, that oysters can eat microplastics, which are covered in these biofilms. And although those microplastics may not stay in the oyster for a long time, they're covered in these living biofilms, so their influence may remain either due to the microplastic direct influence on the host or due to indirect effects uh, by the microbiome. So our initial results are showing that, yes, we do see that Vibrio strains are forming biofilms on different types of plastic, and this biofilm formation is higher at higher temperatures and variable by strain. Um, so we've worked with colleagues from uh, several different locations that are working with Vibrio and oysters 
to develop a culture collection of isolates from the environment and also from outbreaks of disease in people. Um, so we're repeating this experiment with a lot of different conditions to try to see what trends we can pull out. Um, we're using different types of plastic, other substrates like wood, um, many different environmental and clinical strains, um, and looking for these patterns. The next phase of this research takes plastics colonized by Vibrio parahemolyticus and feeds them to oysters. So we're comparing uptake of Vibrio parahemolyticus strains to oysters when they're either provided in the water or provided uh, on microplastics and quantifying if there's a difference there using uh, culture-based and DNA-based methods. And so far, we've completed experiments with a couple of different strains, and we found, again, that the results are strain-specific. So with the first strain, uh, microplastics did enhance uptake of Vibrio, and this was an environmental non-pathogenic strain of Vibrio parahemolyticus. But in another strain, um, a clinical strain, the uptake was statistically similar whether the microplastics were there or not. Um, so we only have one environmental and one clinical strain. So again, it's really important that we're able to repeat this uh, research with many different strains and start to, um, to find out why certain strains are behaving in different ways. And here's just a, a snapshot of the vast diversity of Vibrio parahemolyticus. So you've heard me mention um, non-pathogenic and pathogenic. So it's a, very, uh, it's a very diverse species where, yes, some can make us sick and some just happen to be in the environment and are not going to make us sick. So it makes it really challenging to study because if you're just testing for Vibrio parahemolyticus, it's hard to know if that's pathogenic or not. So these types of lab-based experiments are really, really important to start to tease apart, okay, how conserved are these uh, impacts across uh, the phylogenetic tree of Vibrio parahemolyticus, or is it really specific to just clinical strains or just environmental strains or a mix of both? What can we learn about what are the biggest risks here um, for human health and also for the industry? So the next steps are to address that. What determines whether a strain attaches better on plastic and transmits better to an oyster? Also, you haven't heard me talk too much about the microbiome yet here, but don't worry, it's coming. Um, so we're also planning on uh, expanding these experiments to acknowledge that the plastics that are circulating um, out in the ocean, we know that they're not sterile. They're covered in a microbial community as well, and that's where the Vibrio is, uh, is taking part of the biofilm. So we're also planning experiments to introduce a more complex microbiome and see how the Vibrio dynamics change there in terms of both attachment and uptake. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and tell you about some of the research we're doing uh, related to pathogens that are not harmful to humans, but um, instead to the oysters themselves, so therefore to oyster aquaculture. So now we're moving from food safety to food security. I'm going to talk about a project led by one of our other PhD students, Emily Kunzelman. Um, in the summer, we were also so lucky to have a uh, Scripps undergraduate research fellowship intern, Daisy Menrique, on this project. So I'll tell you a little bit about this specific pathogen and why we are interested in studying it. Um, so learning more about this virus locally here in San Diego is actually incredibly urgent work because there has been some interest in starting up a little bit of an um, oyster aquaculture industry here in San Diego. And as part of the uh, Port of San Diego's Blue Economy Initiative in 2017, uh, this was initiated with this uh, floating upweller system that was designed to take advantage of the warm waters we have in, here in San Diego to kind of kickstart the season and grow some oyster seed that can be sent elsewhere. Great idea, um, but unfortunately, in 2018, this virus, um, OSHV1, was detected for the first time in the San Diego Bay, uh, halting the progress of this system. 
So what is OSHV1? It's a DNA virus that is associated with mortality of young oysters. Um, it initiates a Pacific oyster mortality syndrome that we are still learning about. Um, it affects oysters around the world and has been really of a recent uh, phenomenon. It was first detected in 1999, but more of a problem uh, since 2008 when more virulent microvariants were detected. Here on the West Coast, um, the virus has been endemic in uh, further north in California since 2002. However, it hasn't caused really the devastation that it has in other areas of the world. Um, and we're still learning about if that's due to the water temperatures there or due to the specific variant. Um, here in San Diego, we have very, very limited data since it was only detected recently, and we don't have that, um, that history of oyster aquaculture to be able to assess the impacts. Um, we do have a very little bit of, uh, of data showing that um, in, 20, in 2020, when there were some test oysters put out to kind of detect um, if the, if the uh, virus was there or not, um, there was kind of an anomalous temperature spike and all of the oysters died. So that's one of the very few pieces of data that we have about this um, virus. But we do know from other places around the world that, again, bringing in this kind of disease triangle idea, we know that at higher temperatures, the, the uh, virus seems to cause more mortality. The microvariant itself potentially has an impact as well if some are more virulent than others. Um, and there's also some evidence that the host microbiome could also play a role, that potentially the virus itself either weakens the host or weakens the host's microbiome and kind of opens the door for blooms of pathogenic bacteria to then kill the oyster. Um, and potentially that the host immune response itself could also be playing a role. So the first question that we wanted to address here in San Diego is the um, virulent microvariant present and waiting for a conducive temperature to start killing oysters. So uh, Emily led this study from afar when she was uh, studying abroad in France with a OSHV1 lab, actually. So the rest of our oyster crew helped out and placed these recruitment trials, tiles around San Diego Bay. Uh, and the idea here is that little baby, um, little baby oysters are floating around looking for a place to settle and start to grow. And so we put these tiles out for a while, and then they, what we call recruit, start growing. Uh, by the time they had recruited, Emily was back and she brought them back to the lab and spiked the temperature. So did we see latent OSHV1 in San Diego? Um, no, we didn't. We saw no OSHV1 <laughs> um, and similar survival between the oysters that were exposed or not exposed. So this is just a graph showing that the, um, the oysters, uh, sorry, the oysters exposed to the high temperature um, had similar mortality to those exposed to an ambient temperature. So okay. Field research is always a bit of a shot in the dark, um, especially with pathogen research, because we don't want to put the pathogen out there and see what happens with the natural population. We kind of have to wait and see um, what happens and try to study it as it comes. So we try to do both lab and field studies, as I mentioned before. So luckily, while we were running that observational study, <laughs> we were working hard to set up the infrastructure at SAO to run inoculation experiments with the San Diego microvariant of the virus. Um, and you can see here, Emily and Daisy are ready and excited to learn um, to run these experiments in their protective gear. Um, so we were able to work with uh, SIO facilities as well as OSHV1 experts to really um, make sure that we had many, many controls in place to make sure that the oyster was completely contained within this one room, very far from the aquarium, very far from all of the outflows to the ocean. Um, so you can see there we have our dedicated rubber boots. And we are really excited to have this oyster quarantine zone up and running to be able to actually work with the microvariant. 
So the research question here was, what is the temperature uh, threshold at which the San Diego Bay microvariant can infect and kill uh, oysters that have never been exposed. Um, and here we collaborated with Dr. Colleen Burge from the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and she's really um, one of the leading experts in OSHV1 um, in particular in the U.S. So we were really happy to have her um, support while setting up the system and also running these experiments. So this is a bit of a schematic of the experimental design where we had oysters who were or were not exposed to the virus and we used several different environmentally relevant um, temperatures to look and see what this threshold is. Um, and 18 degrees C was a particularly interesting threshold because that's kind of the hypothesis of the community um, that's studying OSH one that this might be kind of the tipping point. So we wanted to see if that was true in San Diego as well. So I'll show you a few pictures here. Um, the oysters were relaxed so that they would open their adductor muscle um, and then be able to be injected. So here you can see um, Colleen and Kara from our lab are injecting the oysters with the virus. Um, but these are not the oysters that we then tracked. We actually used the injected oysters to then um, put them together with naive oysters to have more of a natural transmission um, of the virus. Uh, each day, the research team examined the tanks for mortality, counted the dead animals, and removed them for processing. So the oysters were dissected. Um, these were very tiny oysters. We were working with juvenile oysters, again, because that's the most kind of susceptible stage um, and also very relevant to our local industry. So the oysters were dissected, stored in a preservative until they were processed for DNA extraction and quantification of the virus. So the first deaths from the virus came only one day in, uh, in the oysters kept at the highest temperature. So that was consistent with our hypothesis, um, and we continued tracking throughout the next couple of weeks. Um, we found that oysters were not killed at all at the lowest temperature at 15 degrees uh, Celsius, but at all of the highest temperatures they were. Um, the mortality did come later for the oysters at 18 degrees, but they still were ultimately killed off by the end. Um, and another component of this study was that we used antibiotics to knock down the, uh, the microbiome. So again, acknowledging that the microbiome is likely playing an important role here. Um, so we wanted to look at whether the survival and the viral load was gonna be different in the oysters that did or did not have their, their microbiome at full fighting strength. But we did not find a difference in this study between the oysters that um, had their full or reduced microbiome. Um, we're, we did see some potential trends again at the 18 degrees C, so we're excited to run some more experiments and start to dig into that more, and also to look at um, healthy versus sick versus dead animals, because as we were running these experiments, um, I learned a lot about how to identify a dead versus a dying oyster, um, which was new for me. Um, but we're uh, hoping to add a, a microbiome component as well to look at the microbial communities of those oysters that are kind of at varying levels of sickness from the, um, from the virus. And here you can see Emily and Daisy at the SIO Summer Undergraduate Research Poster Session presenting this work. Um, she, Daisy did a great job presenting the work, and she's hoping to come back and continue working with our lab. Um, and I will say that these poster sessions are so much fun to see the students really take ownership of the work that they've contributed during the summer and really understand from beginning to end um, everything that they've been working on. So um, I do want to take a minute to talk about mentoring because uh, in my work I'm also very passionate about mentoring. In our lab we work really hard to maintain a supportive and inclusive environment. 
Um, and we partake in opportunities to expand um, opportunities to, uh, to different students who might not under otherwise get the opportunity. Um, there's a lot of really great organizations locally, which I'm sure many of you are aware of. We worked with um, SciTech Girls Program through the Fleet Science Center, uh, the Ocean Discovery Institute Science Leaders Program, the Bridge Builders Foundation, uh, to name a few, and we're always looking for more, um, more outreach opportunities. Um, and as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we had the wonderful opportunity to host an intern through the Scripps Undergraduate Research Fellowship Program this summer, and I was the program coordinator for a brand new summer program this year, a research experience and mentoring program funded by NSF that I want to briefly feature as well, and we have one of our interns here in the front row as well, AJ. Um, and then one of the great things about this summer also was that the uh, different leaders of the internship programs at Scripps, we kind of worked together to share resources and programming so that students were big, part of a bigger cohort, um, and we were able each to uh, contribute our different expertise for different professional development um, sessions and uh, different opportunities for them. So you can see here a, um, a scientific communication workshop led by one of our graduate students, a data analysis workshop but led by one of our graduate students, and then, you know, just some horsing around in the lab. <laughs> so um, I mentioned that we have a very diverse research portfolio in our lab. So this uh, internship program was actually integrated with our built environment research program. Um, we've talked a lot about pathogenic microorganisms today, um, but this research is actually more about leveraging beneficial microorganisms to support human health, and that's also something that we work on a whole lot in our lab. Um, so we have this interdisciplinary collaboration with other scientists at UC San Diego and beyond, where we're working towards the long-term goal of developing biologically active building materials. So the goal of this uh, REM mentoring program was to build a robust mentoring environment to facilitate hands-on training in research and science communication, expose the students to, um, to careers and connections, and help them kind of navigate their thinking about their future career, as well as getting to work on these cool research projects. Um, and another really great part of this program was that we worked with some community partners um, from Cal State San Marcos and the Kumeyaay Nation, Aline Beckett and Benoni Pantoja, who both helped us recruit students from their populations, as well as to support them as mentors throughout the summer, and now they're continuing as well. Um, so we're excited to continue that program. Um, and this work is a really great example of an interdisciplinary research collaboration where we have, uh, I won't go into too much detail right now, but working towards the goal of developing these probiotic interventions. Um, we have some groups working in the lab by running competitions. We have some people working on computers by modeling um, the interactions of different organisms in different environments. And then we have a lab that's working on actually printing the biological control organisms into surfaces that can then be tested in the lab. And throughout all of this, we have uh, the understanding that we need to think from the very early stages of research about the ethical and responsible translation of this research. How is it going to affect people who may actually um, be interacting with these technologies in the future? What can we learn about their perspectives from the very early stages of the research? Um, so here's some pictures of the research team, um, all the different PIs, graduate students, and internships who worked, uh, interns who worked on this program throughout the summer. Um, and I think this program has kind of a, a nice framework for how we can think about inter interdisciplinary applied research in the future of combining lab and field experiments with predictive modeling um, as we're developing interventions, and then always thinking about what are the ethical and responsible impl implementation concerns to think about. So for the built environment, that would be you know talking to people, healthcare providers who might be interacting with 
um, those surfaces in healthcare facilities where we're really trying to combat antibiotic resistance with new cleaning technologies. For the oyster research, it might be working a lot with the uh, oyster growers and uh, the people who regulate uh, food safety for those growers um, and really getting their perspectives early on as we are potentially trying to develop interventions or prevention techniques. So I think this, um, this kind of approach also is important for marine research as well. So um, to wrap up, I think there's a lot of promise for microbial research in marine environments that can help us better understand the ecological context of pathogen contamination and disease progression, um, guiding management decisions, acknowledging the important role of the microbiome, and also that whole host pathogen environment um, interaction, that these uh, interactions are really complex. Um, and potentially to combat pathogenicity and antimicrobial resistance in the future with novel biocontrol approaches in different high-risk environments. And throughout, I think it's really important to teach the next generation of scientists to build a really multifaceted understanding um, of interdisciplinary research and participating in a supportive culture that they can really take forward um, as they build their careers in the future. So I want to thank uh, everybody from my lab um, and all of our collaborators, um, all of the interns who were featured today as well, um, funding agencies, and then, of course, the Birch Aquarium. As I said, I love coming here with my daughter. Here's a picture of her just being awed by the, the kelp forest. <laughs> um, and with that, I'd be happy to take any questions. <laughs> Do you recommend eating raw oysters? Mm. <laughs> That's always the question. Um, I think it depends on how much you love them and what are your risk factors. That's what I would say. So it's a risk benefit. Like you should know that there's a risk um, and think about your personal risk and then make your choice. <laughs> but I will say that uh, I've, you know, hot sauce, alcohol, lemon juice, that's not going to kill off the pathogens, just if you're thinking that it might. <laughs> Yeah, I'm wondering about the biodiversity of uh, oysters. One place I vacation is up in the Long Beach Peninsula in Washington, and they have Oyster Bay and Oysterville, and you know the oyster industry is pretty large up there. Um, what do you see about regional differences in oysters and the associated uh, microbiomes? Yeah, so the question is about the diversity of different oysters, in particular on the West Coast, I'm thinking. So, um, yeah, there is a very rich uh, oyster industry in the Pacific Northwest as well. Um, the Pacific oyster is the most common one. It's actually invasive, but it's also very important for aquaculture. Uh, but I know there's a lot of efforts to restore the more native oysters, like the Olympia oyster that's um, common to the Pacific Northwest, and there's some efforts here as well to, to reestablish those. Um, I know a lot of the industry as well is interested in developing kind of a diverse portfolio, both for their customers who are interested in trying lots of different types of oysters um, and in terms of kind of maybe maintaining some resistance to different disease. And um, there's some breeding programs run through the USDA that are also uh, working really hard on developing potentially resistant lines of oysters against OSHV1. Um, so there are actually, there's a wide diversity of oysters um, however, the vast majority right now are the Pacific oysters, and those are the ones that we see a lot around San Diego. So the, um, the pathogens are more active in warm water, right? So if, is it safer to eat like oysters coming from Alaska or something like that? Because it's much, so much colder up there. 
That's a good question. I know historically the um, the illnesses come tend to spike during the summer months when the water temperatures are higher. Um, so yeah, the 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 range of pathogens tends to be limited more um, to the lower latitudes. But I know there have been more outbreaks um, connected to oysters from further northern latitudes as the waters have continued to warm. And one la one more question. Um, there's a, something saying like in the months that has the months that have an R or something like that. Right. You know, is it is it something true or it's just like old wives' tales kind of thing? I mean, it's some combination. You know, it's 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 based upon the fact that yes, there are more illnesses in the summer, but truthfully, they can happen any time. So I wouldn't say that's a hard and fast rule, especially moving into the future. Um, regarding your um, uh, discussion of the research with uh, pathogens and biofilms on microplastics. Mm -hmm. Is the microplastics a constant, or are there actually different kinds of plastics in different kinds of states of decay that determine how well they form biofilms? So, yes, there are many, many different types of plastics, both in terms of their chemical composition, also what chemicals or microbes might be attached to them, varying states of decay. So yes, I believe that the microbiomes can be different based on those different factors. Um, and there's kind of a call in microplastic research right now for there to be a lot more diversity of research and, and taking into account those environmentally relevant um, microplastics, because right now it's they're difficult to work with in the lab. So some of the initial research in microplastics maybe has been, you know, with the easier to handle stuff, but there's definitely a huge priority to expand the diversity of the different types of microplastics that we're working with in microplastic research. So I'm curious about uh, what type of things are you modeling with your predictive tools as opposed to, let's say, looking at uh, the field experiments? Uh, well, in terms of the marine research, I would say it's mostly in terms of the microbiomes. We're trying to use more the like longitudinal um, data frames to then be able to model the changes over time, and you know hopefully eventually to be able to predict how perturbations to the system might change the microbial communities, and if we can connect those to you know potential health risks or risks to the industry would be the dream. Has there been any other research on uh, other types of shellfish, such as like clams, uh, mussels, abalone, things like that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yes, there's lots of shellfish uh, research out there. Um, I didn't have time to go into it, but uh, we also have a research program with abalone because there's an important uh, bacterial pathogen, actually, that, um, that has been killing abalone, and so we're trying to study um, the potential microbial components of that as well. Um, and yeah, there's diseases that can affect uh, many different uh, shellfish. Uh, the reason, one of the reasons we study oysters is that because they're so economically important and because of the fact that they're eaten raw, um, there's so much that we need to know about how to keep people safe. I'm wondering if the antibiotics that, that people take and that you know, enter into the sewer system and go out into waterways, if that has any influence on microbiomes of marine organisms? Do, and do we know? Mm, that's a good question. I would say, I would predict that the effects of that would be much um, higher, maybe near like antibiotic uh, producing facilities where there's like some sort of industrial runoff rather than kind of the smaller amounts that we're releasing. But um, yeah, that's another aspect that definitely needs more attention. In terms of the OSH1 virus, um, you mentioned that 
uh, when oysters filter, is there a possibility that when um, oysters with that virus, they pass um, the microplastics? And is there a possibility that um, those biofilms could potentially spread a off-put pathogen of the o, uh, of the virus, and could that affect similar crustaceans or mollusks? Yeah, so the question is, if OSHV1 could potentially be present in biofilms on microplastics as well. As far as I know, we only they only have studied kind of oyster-to-oyster transmission directly, but there are a lot of cases where viruses do associate with bacteria, and that can kind of aid transmission in human health, so it's possible. Um, it's definitely possible, and it's something we've discussed between our graduate students who are interested in OSHV1 and microplastics, potentially exploring that combination as well. Can you identify um, this in the geologic record, evidence of the history of microbiomes in the geologic record at all? Oh, uh, let's see. I, chemically. Oh, we can find microbial metabolites potentially dating back that long. And I know there have been like, you know, frozen uh, microbes found um, in far latitudes, but I'm, I'm not a geologist. I'm not too sure. I have a two-part question, maybe. It depends on the answer to the first part. Uh, first part is, do these pathogens survive for long periods of time if the samples are stored? Sorry, could you repeat the question? Do they... Do the pathogens survive so that they could not necessarily live, but could they be identified in samples that are stored for long periods of time? Yes, absolutely. So So has anybody, then the second part of the question, has anybody done any kind of studies to see any increases in concentrations or anything like that based on samples that are housed in the collections here at SIO? Ooh, I'm not sure here at SIO, but I know that there, um, yeah, there's a lot of focus on looking at historical samples, extracting um, DNA and looking at microbes over time, and then placing them in those phylogenetic trees to try to look at the relatedness, absolutely. We, we have a, the, the collections here, part of it is Cal Coffee, been collecting for 49 years, or 74 years since 49, and studies have been done to show the increase in the amount of microplastics in those samples, and I was wondering if anybody might be interested in tying together the biofilms on those plastics over time. Potentially, it would depend a bit on how they were preserved, like how intact the uh, genetic material is going to be, but it would be worth a discussion for sure. So this is a bit beyond the oysters. So we eat the oysters who get the pathogens and we can get sick but say because those pathogens in the water so could we get sick if we go into the ocean with like if we have some cuts or something like that yeah absolutely so i didn't go into that too much but there are other species of vibrio Uh, there's one called vibrio vulnificus that is often associated with um with wound infections. I, I shouldn't say often because it's pretty rare for it to happen, but when it does happen, it's, it's fairly serious. So um, yeah, that's another important vibrio for human health. That's the important thing about, about these pathogens. They're not necessarily extremely common, but when they do occur, they can be serious. So it's an important area of research for prevention. So my question is, what is the natural habitat of vibrio, the one that makes us sick, the, the, the one that infects the oysters, does that come from animals? Because my thought would be that 
you would see it in, you would see this pathogen in the oysters after runoff from a rainstorm or some other you know runoff from farmland going into the ocean or anything like that. I did some work on that when I was a, an undergraduate actually. But the point is, I think if we knew, then that might help to figure out, is, does it come from the ocean or is it from some other source, which could help us to kind of prevent it, perhaps. Yeah, so Vibrio actually are quite at home in the ocean, um, and that what, that's what makes them a little bit distinct from some other um, foodborne pathogens that might be more uh, commonly associated within, like the mammalian gut um, but, I mean, it is possible that there could be certain runoff sources, but since they are pretty happy to stay and live in the ocean, they can just be kind of constantly circulating. I heard that salt water kills everything. <laughs> 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 and that the Del- at the Del Mar racetrack, for instance, the horses would be run in the water up in Del Mar, especially if they were wounded, because that would help heal whatever the wounds they had. So I'm beginning to think maybe it doesn't kill everything. (laughs) Oh, no. I know. So please settle that rumor. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately it doesn't. I mean, a lot of microorganisms are sensitive to salt, but if they've, you know, evolved for a long time to be comfortable in the ocean, then they would be exempt from that. So, yeah, unfortunately not everything is safe in the salt water. (laughs) What was something about your research that surprised you? I'd say when I was uh, back doing research at the FDA and we did a, um, a large survey of the eastern shore of Virginia trying to look for sources of uh, salmonella in the environment, we really expected it to be connected to the poultry farms that are kind of around everywhere. But we actually found that the salmonella was just kind of present in the water, actually, where previously um, it was thought more so that the salmonella would only be there if there had been some sort of runoff or some sort of uh, animal that had gotten in there. But then we started to learn that some of these pathogens are actually just kind of circulating in the environment, but then we're not necessarily getting sick all the time. So I think that kind of um, sparked a lot of my interest being there at the FDA and starting to realize that, you know, these dynamics are a lot more complicated in terms of where we're seeing pathogens and what that means for our health, kind of thinking about that disease triangle of there's not always going to be an outbreak of disease when a pathogen is in the environment. It really needs those kind of conducive, um, kind of conducive situations to actually make people sick. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.